you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so that's where we're going to be this morning, uh, taking a little break from the book of Acts this morning. Uh, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so I figured that I'd take some time uh, this morning to address the sanctity of human life. Genesis chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 7, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Yesterday there were some 400,000 women gathered in Washington, D.C. to march for women's rights, equality of women, and the inclusivity of women. There was one problem with that. They were inclusive as long as you agreed with what they wanted to do. Yesterday, while the march was going on in cities all across America, women that were pro-life and agreed with the sanctity of human life were spat upon, mud thrown in their face, things thrown at them because they didn't agree with these other women that were marching. 30% of all babies that are conceived in America are murdered by an abortion. 17% of the U.S. population has been murdered through abortion since Roe versus Wade. This is greater than the total population of 25 U.S. states and 219 countries. The United States has murdered more babies through abortion than the population of South Africa, South Korea, Spain, Poland, Canada, or Australia. Being outside of the womb is not a criteria for personhood. Why do women have abortions? 1% because of rape, 6% because of health problems, and 93% of all abortions are because of social reasons. This morning I want to talk about the sanctity of human life. I don't want to just talk about abortion or the life of infants, 
but I want to talk about the entirety of human life. We discuss pro-life and pro-abortion or pro-murder. We discuss euthanasia or prolonging life through life support systems. But what we should be asking is this question. How does God feel about the sanctity of human life? Period. And notice I did not say, how do you or I feel about the sanctity of human life? But the question is, how does God feel? Because there's not one verse in the Bible that speaks of God answering to men. But there are many verses that speak of men answering to God. We live in a day and a society where life is no longer regarded as sacred. In fact, we can look around and it seems at every turn we can see the devaluization of human life through violence, through abortion on demand, and through a constant push for allowing for euthanasia. We can sit and argue ethics all we want, and we can talk about how the problem is the moral decay in our society. But let's be perfectly clear. The problems we face in our society when it comes to the devaluization of human life stem from the erosion of the Bible as a standard of truth in our society. When we decide that the Bible is not the standard and we accept things such as the theory of evolution as our ultimate truth, then we are all just animals and we have no basis for morality at all and no basis for any kind of cultural norm in our life. Without the Bible as our standard of truth, there is no reason to affirm what we call the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. And there's no reason to hold to the precious truth that all human life is sacred. If a nation or a culture is ever going to survive, they must hold to and proclaim the biblical truth of the sanctity of human life. In the Old Testament, God had destroyed the earth and all of human and animal life except for those who were on the ark. It was a new beginning for the human race, which was judged and destroyed because of its corruption. In our text this morning, we notice one of the very first things God doing with Noah is affirming the sanctity of human life. God is establishing the foundation and how we are to view human life right from the start before the earth is repopulated and humanity takes over. If God proclaims the sanctity of human life, then we are to do the same. The first thing I want us to notice from Genesis chapter 9 is this. God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. These words we find here in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 and in verse 7 are the very same words that were used way back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 at the very beginning when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. The Lord desires for his people to multiply on the earth. Why? Well, think about the context of a husband and wife that love the Lord and they have children. What are they hopefully going to do with their children? Well, they're hopefully going to teach their children to love the Lord. And those children will go up and serve the Lord. And guess what? They're going to have their own children that they teach to love the Lord and so on. 
The will of the Lord is that the earth be populated, and through that, he will be glorified. However, I have a question for you. And one I believe that this text should raise for us, and one that we should answer. Do these verses mean, then, that we should have as many kids as possible? Is that what it means? Do they mean that we should have as many kids as we possibly can? Do they mean that we can't use birth control? Do they mean that men could never get a vasectomy? Do these verses mean that if we do have children or, 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 or we don't have children, that somehow we are sinful? Or that if we can't have children, then that must mean the Lord's punishing me? Is that what these verses mean? How someone applies these verses that we read here in Genesis chapter 9 can have a profound impact on their life. Sometimes I don't think we think deeply enough about the scripture and what it's really saying. What we must understand as we read these verses is this. Though we read that God is saying be fruitful and multiply, let's not miss the first part of the verse when it says God bless Noah and his sons. What we see here is that children are the universal evidence of the Lord's creation blessing who are not to be disparaged nor are they to be exploited but celebrated by responsible parenting and societal protection. Ultimately, what we have here is a reaffirmation of human life by God by blessing Noah and his sons to multiply the earth. I say this so that we understand that children are to be looked at as a blessing from God. They are a life, not just some sort of object or a way to get a tax break on our tax return. I also say this so that we understand that birth control can be morally permissible as long as it is not an abortification. In other words, if someone is going to use a birth control pill, they should get multiple opinions and do plenty of research to verify that it is indeed not an abortification and that birth control is only used in the boundaries of marriage, not used to promote promiscuity, unmarried, or extramarital sex. Some might say, well... You said children are a blessing. So, and that's what the scripture says. So, shouldn't we always seek to have as many blessings as we possibly can? After all, we don't want to try to limit the blessings from God. True, that may be one way to look at it, but I would urge you not to use that mentality or standard for someone else because after all, we do limit blessings from God all the time. We limit food, some of us more so than others. Sleep, some of us more so than others. Hobbies, material possessions, all blessings from God. We limit all of them. Some people perhaps are better off waiting to have children until they can financially care for their children. Some people also argue and say that if a Christian uses any form of birth control, then they must be playing God. Again, that is somewhat of an absurd statement. Many of us, uh, many people use uh, birth control, but many of us use modern medicine for all kinds of things. We have no issue with that. We have no issue with, with using medicine or vitamins or whatever it might be to extend our life. And yes, God ordains how many children we have. And it is possible that God ordains the use of birth control to get to where we need to be. And maybe not. Again, this is a preference. This is a very vast difference. Or there is a very vast difference between preventing conception and destroying life. 
after conception has occurred. Before conception has occurred, there is no new life that is involved. But once conception occurs, a new human life has been formed. All that is required for that human life is time and nurture, and it will soon be what we are. In other words, humans do not produce anything other than human life. And time is not a factor, as I said before, in determining personhood. In other words, a human doesn't have a goat, okay? They have a human. That's what they produce. This means that some forms of birth control are indeed immoral and it means that any abortion is unacceptable but it also means that any method of birth control which allows conception to take place which allows an egg to be fertilized but prevents implantation is immoral because that in essence is a form of abortion any form of birth control that destroys a developing human is not acceptable and should never be accepted by Christians. Additionally, let's be clear. Any couple that chooses to have sex as a married couple must understand that with sex comes a responsibility of the possibility of conceiving a child. This is one reason why sex should be kept within the boundaries of marriage. And if you have sex as a married couple and you conceive a child, then you have been given an awesome responsibility from the Lord and you have been given an incredible blessing from the Lord. And that's part of his plan to fill the earth. To abort a child is to shed the blood of an innocent human, which God condemns in verse 6. So sex should be reserved for marriage and a couple should not marry until they are ready to accept the possible responsibility of, of the blessing of having children. Now I want to talk for just a moment about children and about what we clearly see the Lord laying out for us in these verses is that God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. Some people say, I don't, I don't want children. I never, I never want children. And they make a decision to use birth control so as to never have children. And I believe that if that is the case, we should examine our motives for that being our desire. If we don't want children because they're going to interfere with our life, well, that's, that's wrong. That's living for self. That's sinful. And your own pleasure you're, you're, you're not living for God. You're saying, well, a child might interfere with me. You see, as followers of Christ, we should be looking to adopt God's view of children, not just insert our own view of children on the scripture. And his view is that children are a blessing. And we have to reject the world's view that says sometimes the children are a burden. Children are a responsibility. There's no doubt about it. Children Cause us to adjust our lifestyle. There is no doubt about it. I can remember life before children. Okay? I didn't have to plan things. If I wanted to go out to eat, just went out to eat. You know, if I want to go do this, we just went and did it. But when a child comes along, suddenly everything changes. You know what children also do? They have a way of revealing to us our heart my kids often reveal to me the sin in my own heart whether it's selfishness whether it's some form of anger or bitterness my children are a constant reminder that I'm not to live for myself with that said 
I'd also make it clear that sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes people want children for purely fleshly reasons. There have been women who have gotten pregnant to try to keep their spouse in their relationship. Or a husband thinks a child is going to get his wife to stop complaining. Sometimes people want a child so that they can gain love or attention that they never received as a child. And they, they use that child to try to meet their own emotional needs. And, and when their child leaves home, they're devastated. And so we should always examine our motives for wanting or not wanting children. But there are other factors some should consider when it comes to children. For example, Scripture clearly tells us that we are to provide for our families. That includes financially, emotionally, and spiritually. That does not mean that you have to be wealthy and your kids have to run around in all the latest fashions and all the fancy schmancy stuff that you can get them. But you should be able to meet their basic needs. Also, we must consider as parents what we can handle in all these areas. Some parents can effectively parent two kids while others can effectively parent ten kids. Finally, let me be clear this morning. I believe it is okay for a couple to responsibility or responsibly use a method to prevent conception that is not considered abortion. If that couple has prayerfully checked their motives to make sure their decision is not based on selfishness or worldly pursuit or attitudes towards children. Let me draw us back to this point. That is this. God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. Which means that most Christian couples should want to have as many children as they can care for because they want to see those children love and serve Jesus. It means that all children are a blessing from God and they all have value and they all deserve to be loved because they are God's gift. Which leads me to this, and I'll wrap this point up because I've already spent too long here. Because we know that all children are a blessing from God and they all have value, and they all deserve to be loved, and they all deserve to be taught to serve Jesus Christ, then as followers of Christ, we should seek to make sure that we do all we can to have as many children as we can possibly care for. And that means adoption. Sometimes in God's divine plan, He has allowed someone else to have a child that they can't care for and they have given that child up for adoption or perhaps that child enters the foster care system. As Christians, we perhaps can care for children, but we have not had any children. Or we can care for more children than we already have. Or maybe we can't have children anymore. Or we can never have children in the first place, but we're capable of caring for children. Therefore, we should seek to adopt other children. And if we can't adopt children, if for some reason that cannot happen, then we should seek to give help to others who can adopt children. Church, I want to be clear. There's no greater picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than that of adoption. That of taking a child that was not born to you and adopting that child into your family. Because this is what has happened to us. We've been adopted into the family of God. And we have full rights as children of God. Right now, in the state of Illinois, there are over 3,000 kids in the foster care system. As Christians, we're good at talking about the evils of abortion. But we're very bad about actually offering an alternative to mothers. 
We are good at shaming someone for an abortion, but we are terrible at showing grace and mercy to a mother who has nowhere to go and nowhere to turn, and we're terrible at helping moms that have no idea what to do. And we can start by giving women an option, an alternative to an abortion, by giving towards adoption, by adopting children ourselves, or by helping programs that will help women in these situations that have nowhere to go and nowhere to turn, and they're at the end of their rope, and they don't know what they're going to do. The abortion statistics are not a failure of the U.S. You know what they are? They're a failure of the church to do what the church is supposed to be doing in the first place. God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. Secondly, God confirms the sanctity of human life by ordaining humans' dominion over animal life. By ordaining humans' dominion over animal life. Listen, I know we love our animals, and there's nothing wrong with loving a domesticated pet. But very clearly, God put the fear of man on wild animals to ensure that animal life will not be a threat to humanity, and he has put the entirety of the animal life under man's control. He also very, very clearly and very plainly gave man permission to eat meat. In fact, he uses the word everything twice in verse 3, just in case we're not clear. I, for one, am very thankful that God tells us we can eat meat. Because I like meat. Many believe that before the flood, man and animals were vegetarians. But here man is given meat for sustenance. Now, that is not to say that everyone has to eat meat because some people are vegetarian for health reasons, but there's nothing that makes someone more spiritual because they're a vegetarian, okay? Or more spiritual because they eat meat. We also read that here God is making it clear that man is not to eat meat with its blood still in it. In other words, you do not eat the animal while it's still alive and you drain the blood from the animal. This is actually a pointing ahead to the sacrificial system which God will put into place under Moses, which is very important because the law of Moses has not been given yet. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Leviticus 17.11 God requires that the soul that sins shall die, but by his grace he made a provision through the shed blood of an acceptable substitute, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, so that all who trust in Jesus Christ's death on their behalf do not have to face judgment. Now we see that God made animals to serve people. He didn't make people to serve animals. That doesn't mean that we get to mistreat animals. We should seek to protect them from needless destruction. We should be kind to animals, especially those that we will use for food as we have to care for them. But animals are given to serve us. We're not given to serve them. I believe this is important not... To, to us, especially today. You know why? Because we have a lot of animal rights stuff. We see where people have elevated the saving of an animal 
over and above the saving of people. It is crazy to me that people will launch campaigns to save the baby seals or save eagles or save whatever it might be. And there will be huge fines levied against people for doing harm to these animals. And those same people will be okay with destroying a baby through abortion. Listen, we got things so backwards. The animals are here to serve man. And when we get things out of whack, we lobby for the rights of animals, ignoring the fact that those animals were given to us by God to feed hungry people. And so we see that God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated and by ordaining dominion over the animal life. Thirdly, God confirms the sanctity of human life by revealing his will is for, is for it to be protected through capital punishment. Human life is to be protected through capital punishment punishment. In verses 5 and 6, we have an establishment of human government. In these verses, God delegates authority to man for the life of man. Government is, government is instated by God to put into check the sin of man and to protect mankind. Protect man from who? From himself. God makes it clear that because man is created in his image, that there is a sanctity of life, and that human life has worth and it has value. Therefore, anyone who murders another person must pay the ultimate price for that murder by forfeiting their own life in exchange for the life that they've taken. Now here's part of the problem. Society has constantly decayed human life. What is a life worth? Well, that depends on what stage of life you're in. In our society, if you're not contributing to the society, then you have no value. And if you've already contributed to society, then you have no value either. So therefore, if one of those lives are taken, then very little, if anything, happens to you. There's no punishment for aborting a baby. Furthermore, if you do take a life, perhaps you get so many years in prison, all at the taxpayer's expense. And even that says we don't really value life at all. Now, I'm not here to debate capital punishment. However, I tell you that I believe Scripture clearly is teaching capital punishment to us. There are those that feel that capital punishment has been replaced by the ethic that we see in the life of Christ which is the ethic of love. We are not called to take revenge, and that is a terrible thing to kill a killer. After all, if we take a killer's life, how will they ever have an opportunity to repent? Or if they do repent, then we've killed a Christian. Making this issue even more complex, what crimes are deserving of capital punishment? In the law of Moses, the death penalty was instituted for many crimes like rape, Adultery, homosexuality, hitting, cursing, and rebelling against your parents. That sounds good. Um, could, that could all get you the death penalty. Cursing God, breaking the Sabbath. The fact of the matter is, if we went by the law of Moses, most of us would probably be dead right now. Right? Because we've done these things. 
Also, some people would argue that God didn't always carry out capital punishment, even for murderers. Look at Cain, look at Moses, even King David. Plus, when, 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 we, uh, when that woman was caught in adultery, even though the law mandated her death, Jesus instead showed leniency to her. Plus, the death penalty is not really a deterrent. And our judicial system is so messed up, there's no way to, to make sure it's fairly applied to all people and we could accidentally execute an innocent person. So these are many reasons Christians oppose the death penalty. While I can say there are some good arguments and we should consider them, I can't get past what God's word teaches us. I believe that capital punishment is to be used by government as a means that protects the value of human life in our society. God makes it clear that even an animal that takes a person must pay its life. So a wild animal that doesn't even know any better must pay. God clearly in these verses demonstrates the sanctity of human life. And so must we by imposing the death penalty for murder. Furthermore, the New Testament makes it clear that the government can impose the death penalty. In Romans chapter 13, Paul is under the rule of Nero, who was one of the most vile and violent people towards Christians. And he writes that Christians are to be subject to the governing authorities. And he answers why. Because those authorities are ordained by God. And for what reason? Paul says, to avenge wrongs and bring wrath, including the sword, upon the wrongdoer. But we're supposed to have love and compassion towards our enemies. We need to know the difference between personal and governmental actions. If we followed the logic of love and compassion to its final conclusion, we could not ever punish any criminal. Because we have to show love and compassion. Furthermore, what about compassion and love for the victims and for their families? Listen, personal vengeance is wrong according to Scripture. However, the point of the government is so that justice is served. So that personal vengeance does not have to take, take place. So that someone receives their due punishment for what they've done. That is the whole point of, of the Scripture. That's the whole point of what God is instituting. That someone receives their due punishment through the government. And when just punishment that is proportionate to the crime occurs it's a foundation for ethical responsibility and it gives moral significance to our actions within a society if we take away the penalty for a crime then then crime becomes insignificant if we take away the death penalty for murder then life is devalued and it's insignificant then it means nothing if there's no reason for me not to commit a crime because there's no penalty for it guess what I'll commit all the crime I want to. And to illustrate this point, because I knew I was preaching this sermon, we had a SAM meeting, which is Senior Adult Ministries meeting, on Tuesday. And Steve, back there, he gave us a test. There was no penalty instituted if you cheated. None. So I cheated. Now I didn't tell any of them that. Now they know. I looked at Miss Wanda's paper. Where's she at? Because she's smart. She knows just about everything. She always wins those games. Right? Why? To illustrate this point. There, there's no, there was no penalty. 
Steve wasn't going to take me aside even if I said, hey, I cheated and, and really give me a what for. I'm sorry for looking at your paper, Miss Wanda, but you are smart. You usually get, get them all right. Um, well, I should have sat by Ray Vandenberg. He did get them all right. Miss Wanda missed one. Anyway. Yeah. That, that, that's the point. If, if there's no penalty, then it's insignificant. When someone says the death penalty is wrong, my response is no murder is wrong. This person killed someone that was innocent of breaking any law. They have taken someone's life that is made in the image of God. Now the state is killing them, a guilty person, in order to uphold the law. When we refuse to make any distinction between murder and the government carrying out justice, we deny the principles of law and justice. I love what the New American Commentary says. Capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of human life. Capital punishment is there to instill the sanctity of human life. And over time, we have begun to remove the sanctity of human life, and then we throw our hands up in the air, and we wonder why nobody values life anymore. Well, that person needs an opportunity to repent. That is not even a valid argument because God does not always remove consequences to sin, even though he forgives sin. Well, if we hold to a view of capital punishment, then what should be considered crime worthy of capital punishment? Well, at minimum, first degree murder, otherwise human life has no value. And if I'm perfectly honest, I'd be in favor of going further with capital punishment than I could defend biblically. For such things as repeat child molesters or rapists or those that show no value for humans at all. God's primary concern is with justice. And the death penalty should be applied evenly for all people after a fair trial and a thorough conviction of guilt. And we could argue all we want that the death penalty is not a deterrent. But it doesn't really matter. I personally believe that if it were carried out properly, swiftly, and uniformly, it would be. I guarantee you this, it would prevent a murderer from ever murdering again. Is there the possibility that an innocent man could be executed? Yes. This is why the judiciary process should be followed. And if there is even the slightest doubt that that person, they shouldn't die. However, emotion must be separated from the decision. Life and death decisions are made every single day by our government. On rare occasions, there may be an innocent person that was killed by capital punishment. However, many more innocent people will be killed by murderers who are allowed to live without capital punishment. We're not called to think through things with our emotions. We're called to think through things biblically. And the Bible appears abundantly clear in Genesis chapter 6 and Romans 13 that we should follow capital punishment. And I have not found a biblical argument yet that's persuasive enough to overturn it. Why? Because it's necessary to uphold the sanctity of human life. Listen, church, it's clear that God believes in the sanctity of human life. I don't want this to be a sermon that you think, well, you know what, that's nice. That's nice. I want you to understand this morning that all life is sacred. All life has value.
or has value. Now, as followers of Christ, which is you and I, if we are believers in Christ, we need to make it clear that you and I believe in the sanctity of human life. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, some of you can get involved in pro-life groups. There are pro-life agencies here in Tazewell County that need help with counseling. And this morning, we're doing uh, this baby bottle blessing that's the announcements in your bulletin. You take one of these bottles. I have one right up here. We have them down in the welcome center. You take a bottle. You take it home. You fill it with change. You bring it back. And we give that to the, to the crisis pregnancy center. And the information's right there on the bottle. Just go pick one up. That's a way you can help. Perhaps you have an idea. A way to help unwed mothers or mothers struggling with pregnancy. And maybe you want to start a ministry. Maybe you want to start a ministry here in our church because you know of this. Then do it. Perhaps you want to start some sort of adoption ministry. My wife and I are going through the process of being able to foster care in the coming months. I hope to give more information to you about a a program called Safe Families in the next few months. These are ways to be involved. We should always vote pro-life. We should be willing to write to our legislators and our newspapers and do whatever it takes to defend the unborn. We should be a people of prayer. We should pray for our government. We should pray for those in authority. We should pray that justice be carried out in our land. Pray that we would see the sanctity of human life restored in our country. Church, I want to close with this. And perhaps you're here this morning. And you've had an abortion or you've counseled someone to have one. Or maybe even just know someone who has had one. Perhaps you did so in ignorance and maybe not. But maybe you have come to the realization of how wrong and sinful this was in the sight of God. Because he has instituted the sanctity of human life. Let me tell you this morning. That though God takes sin seriously. He is also a forgiving God full of grace and mercy. Even murderers have found grace in him. And through Christ's death on the cross, God maintains justice because Christ paid the price. But also he shows his love by giving pardon to all who will receive it. No matter how great the guilt you feel in your life, God's grace is greater. And right now, this morning, you can receive the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ. And I just want to make that clear to you this morning. My goal this morning is not that we just walk out of here saying, oh, well, you know, another message on the sanctity of human life. That's good. My goal this morning is that we understand that each and every one of us has a responsibility to protect the sanctity of life no matter what stage it's in. No matter if they contribute to society or not. All life is precious to God. And as a church, we should be taking that stand that all life is precious. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And maybe the Lord's spoken to you some some way, somehow. Maybe you've understood forgiveness for the first time this morning. 
I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. I'll talk with you later if that's what you want. I'll talk to you now. It doesn't matter. If the Lord has spoken to you, spoken to your conscience, I want to challenge you this morning to surrender to that. However he's spoken to you, if you need to make some sort of decision, I want to challenge you to do that this morning. Let's close with a time of prayer.